Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. Fall is upon us and Democrats are juggling some major pieces of legislation that will affect what happens in the midterm elections next year. But outside the Beltway, both parties are right now redrawing the district lines that will help determine control of Congress for the next decade. Joining us today to discuss his party's efforts is Adam Kincaid, executive director of the National Republican Redistricting Trust. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Rose Gem. Every episode of Down Ballot Counts, I introduce a political number of note I lovingly call Jero's Gem, and this episode's gem is 187. That's the number of congressional districts that Republicans are in control of redrawing for the next decade of U.S. House elections, starting with the 2022 election. While this total represents fewer than half of the 435 House districts, minus six statewide at-large districts that can't be redrawn, Republicans still have an advantage over Democrats who will be the final authority to redraw 75 districts. The rest of the districts will be drawn either by commissions or in states where both Democrats and Republicans will share the power to redraw the lines. In most states, legislatures and governors redraw lines in a process that's similar to how a bill becomes a law, though redistricting commissions have become a more popular alternative for redrawing the lines. Look for courts to intervene with maps in response to inevitable litigation or an impasse in a state legislature. Republican control of the line drawing in states like Texas, Florida, and Georgia could help the GOP solidify its hold over some currently competitive districts and maybe help them reach the net gain of five seats they need to win the House majority in 2022. Democrats will seek to exert their influence over redistricting in states like Illinois and New York. We'll talk a lot more about congressional redistricting coming right up, but that is your Jero's Gem. All right, up next, we'll get to our conversation with Adam Kincaid. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. We're talking now with Adam Kincaid, executive director of the National Republican Redistricting Trust, where he coordinates the party's 50-state effort to influence how the lines are drawn. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So redistricting is fundamentally a state-by-state process, but it has for decades had some coordination from the national parties here in D.C. Still, both parties only in the past few years launched organizations solely focused on redistricting. Why did that become necessary, and and what do you see as your organization's most important functions for the party's cause? Sure. I think there's a lot of different reasons why uh, both sides have created their own organizations. A big part of it actually have to go back a couple decades, all the way back to McCain-Feingold. Um, when the parties, when we changed the way we funded elections in the country, it took a lot of the money out of things like governor's races, legislative races, and redistricting, right? Because you had limited numbers of federal dollars that you could raise to do certain things. And so um, we saw at first the migration of groups like RSLC and RGA out of the RNC, but redistricting something that kind of stuck around for a while. And so through the 2010 cycle, redistricting was done over at the RNC. But the problem was that when uh, that last cycle happened, we had a great midterm, had a lot of control. The problem was that there wasn't a lot of uh, commitment to developing the data 
that we needed for redistricting. And so when I was hired at the NRCC in 2011, uh, we were told we'd have all of this great data to use to draw maps, right, and to analyze districts. When I was hired, I walked upstairs the RNC, talked to them, and found out the data wasn't done yet. It hadn't been developed. And so um, we were we were functionally taking off you know, on an airplane while building it at the same time, right? So um, by the end of the cycle, we had about 35 states worth of political data um, to, to analyze maps with. I remember uh, Massachusetts in particular. You know, obviously, at that time, people were looking at Mass 6 as a potential competitive race. It had been a couple times, and so people were looking at it. We had no political data for Massachusetts, so I went... Um, you know, township by township, gathering election data to figure out which ones were in which districts because we had no way to do it in our mapping platform. Uh, and for nine congressional districts, going by township in Massachusetts isn't the easiest thing to do, as I'm sure you can imagine. So I'm sure you all have done probably. Um, but um, yeah, so what we realized was we couldn't do that again, right? And so um, as, a, as a group working with the RNC and, RG, and RGA and RSLC and all sorts of other groups in RCC, we all came together and said, look, redistricting something that needs to have a full-time focus, um, not just on data, but also on litigation. And so um, in 2017, we started the National Republican Redistricting Trust. We were a year behind the NDRC, which they started in 2016, but uh, you know, they had groups that existed for redistricting for decades before that. Uh, on the Republican side, that wasn't the case. You know, everything had always been done at the RNC. People would get hired. Uh, we'd go through the cycle, and then they'd go away and go do something else, right? And so um, that was just how it worked, and that was fine. But the problem also was that the RNC did that because Republicans didn't have a lot of control over the process. And so in, 2000, in 1991, Republicans controlled redistricting in two states, New Hampshire and Utah. I think it was a whopping four, maybe five congressional districts that we had control over uh, in 1991. So there was a reason the party hadn't made that a top priority, right? Um, if you don't have the ability to draw the lines, why you why do you spend that much time and energy on infrastructure? And so uh, 2010 rolls around and all of a sudden we control 200 seats. That's how big of a shift it was in 20 years. And so that's why the trust exists. Um, yeah, the other part of that, not just data is litigation. You know, we've seen just a wave of litigation over this decade that's something that we haven't seen before not just on racial gerrymandering which has been kind of the mainstay of um of redistricting litigation in the 90s and the 80s and even the 2000s but now a lot more partisan gerrymandering litigation that's changed the nature of how we fund it and what needs to be funded so we kind of deal with both of those two things Adam, as you mentioned, you were at the National Republican Congressional Committee, the campaign arm of U.S. House Republicans during the last redistricting cycle in 2011 and 2012. Uh, you mentioned um, differences from last decade with the full-time focus on redistricting, you know, more political data in hand, litigation. Uh, what else is different about redistricting this decade compared to last decade? The fact I'm talking to you all is pr probably part of what's very different this decade versus last decade. I, I joke, but it's true. I mean, I only got one press call uh, at the NRCC in redistricting in 2011. Uh, you know, no one really called. No one asked anything, really. I think press would reach out and ask for data on new districts, and that was about it. Uh, and so now it's a totally different world. People know about redistricting. People care about redistricting. Um, so I think that's a big change, a lot more of a communications effort around this than there used to be. And so 
Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Another big change has been the uh, proliferation of all of these redistricting uh, platforms that are available to the public. Uh, Days redistricting and redistricting R or whatever it's called. Um, you know, all of those are, I think they're great. I think they're great tools. I think, um, you know, they're good for people to be able to engage with the process. And I think that, you know, it's obviously a lot of fun for people. If you ever spend any time looking on mapping Twitter, you can tell some of the things that people uh, post out there. But um, yeah, and I think that's been a good thing. I think it helps people realize how challenging this is. Um, but I think the other part of what those platforms have done is it creates a situation where everyone thinks you can create X number of districts drawing in a vacuum, right? But the thing is when you're dealing with those apps and you're drawing it, yes, you can do that. But when you're drawing it for real, you have state legislators, you have members of Congress, you have you know incumbents, political realities, all sorts of different things that come into play that maybe don't come into play when it comes to drawing things just for fun on Dave's or whatever else. And you've said you've counseled Republican map makers to not overdo it and to draw 10-year maps. Could you explain for our listeners what you mean by those two points? Uh, yeah, it's, it's not a question of, I think some people conflate overdoing it with being aggressive or trying to go and, and you know create new seats that's not what I'm, we're talking about I'm, what I'm trying to communicate to people is if you're going to draw a map that does that tries to flip a, a democratic district right do it within the scope of the law number one make sure you're following whatever the federal laws are that apply and the state laws that apply but then don't draw something that's going to flip back in four years right um, you know don't draw it for one cycle we don't know if this electorate that we currently live in, is going to be the electorate for the decade. I think if both parties were um, drawing maps in 2011, knowing that Donald Trump was on the horizon in 2016, we both sides would have drawn maps very, very differently, right? Um, and I think that we assume some things about the current electorate, that there's a realignment and you know maybe the suburbs are coming back to the Republicans, maybe they're not, you know, we'll see what all plays out. But what I'm just you know encouraging people to do is Follow the law. Make sure that they're they're not stretching the bounds of legality um, to an unnecessary extent, right? And then also, um, yeah, drawing maps that'll stand for ten years. Think about what realignments could look like. Think about you know what those districts are um, supposed to do. And you know we want ten-year maps, not maps that are just going to flip back and forth. There's no point in taking back the house in 2022 if we can't hold it. Right. Is there an example of a previous Republican redistricting that you felt then or in retrospect today, you know, didn't fully consider the political and demographic shifts that could ensue over 10 years? Um, I don't mean to pick on the other side, but I honestly think the best um, example is Illinois. I think Illinois is the best example in the country of, of those partisan realignments. Right. If you look at Illinois 6, Illinois 6 was designed to be a Republican vote sink in Metro Chicago that ended up being a pretty reliable Democrat seat by the end of the decade. You had two seats downstate that were designed to be Democratic districts that we both controlled by the end of the decade. And I think Trump won a couple of them by more than 20 points. So um, uh, those are two places, you know, Illinois is a, a really good example where you have both things in one spot. Uh, Minnesota is another interesting one where you've had, um, you know, you have eight districts, you know, four Republicans now and four Democrats. I think that if you had looked at that map in 2011 versus in 2020, I don't think you would have expected that those four were the Republican ones and those four were the Democrat ones, right? But you saw Minnesota 8 and Minnesota 1 flip to Republicans, and you saw Minnesota 2 and Minnesota 3 flip to Democrats. So um, that's the nature of the realignment that we saw, uh, and those are probably the two states with the best 
um, in-state examples of those realignments. And in the 2020 election, House Republicans, as you know, pulled to a, just a five-seat net gain away from winning the majority in 2022. Does a narrowly, very narrowly divided House coupled with the historical trends favoring Republican gains in a midterm election with a Democratic president, does that adjust the strategic advice you give to Republican mapmakers about how they should draw congressional lines? In other words, I mean, can and should Republicans be less aggressive in redistricting down just five seats instead of maybe being down 20 seats? Look, it, it, people could go and draw max out maps everywhere, but it doesn't mean they're not going to snap back in five to six years, right? So Justice O'Connor understood this best. Um, she was the only Supreme Court justice, to my knowledge, that was also a state legislator and had any role to play officially in redistricting. And you know, so when she wrote about this, about partisan gerrymandering, she said that voters are the ones that collect that correct these gerrymanders, right? And you know, if if politicians stretch that rubber band too tight, eventually it pops, right? So um, you know, what I think people need to look at for 2022 is yes, it could be a great year, but that means that districts that are D plus one, D plus four, D plus five, they could be gettable. It doesn't mean we need to go create a bunch of D plus one, D plus four, D plus five districts, right? So um, one thing about redistricting that I think people need to realize is that it's trench warfare on both sides. You know, you, you go, you you lock down your vulnerable incumbents, you make sure that they're, you know, short up. And the, the less money you're spending on defense, the more you can spend on offense, right? So every dollar that, you know, the NRCC or any other groups are spending to protect a vulnerable member is a dollar they're not spending going after Indiana one or, you know, somewhere else. Right. And I think that, you know, we, I think everybody, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, if you're on a campaign committee, you prefer to be on offense versus defense. Right. And so um, I think that's the big difference. I think that 22 will be a good year for Republicans. And when we get good um, incumbents, they can hold those seats. And what did you think about the Texas legislature's draft congressional map and how it uh, treated uh, heavily Hispanic areas in the state? Well, I think you, if you look down on the Rio Grande Valley, there's been some very clear signs over the last decade that uh, rural Hispanics in, in particular in Texas and, and elsewhere are trending Republican. And so I think Texas 15, you know, what you saw there is probably a good example of that. Maybe Texas 28 as well. Um, and then by the end of the decade, Texas 34 may even come online, depending on what these trends look like and how much they um, they continue over time. But it's not just in Texas. You know, we're seeing these things even with the California recall, where um, where rural Hispanics voted to to recall uh, Governor Newsom at a higher rate than than others. So, and you know, that trend line is something national. It's going to be a problem for the Democratic Party moving forward. And going state by state, uh, what do you think about some other congressional maps that have been introduced or? you know, enacted or come close to enactment uh, thus far? I mean, I think everything so far has been just about what we expected. Um, you know, a year ago, we expected Democrats would draw a 5-1 map in Oregon, right? And then, you know, they cut a deal, uh, Republicans and Democrats had equal numbers of seats on the committee. And I think there were some people who thought, oh, maybe we'll end up at 4-2 or something else. Uh, obviously, Democrats went back on that deal, passed the 5-1 map we expected all along. So, uh, you know, that's, that's Oregon, um, Nebraska. You know, Democrats had the ability to block uh, more significant changes in Nebraska too, because we only we didn't have enough Republican votes in the legislature. So a status quo map was the expectation there. So I don't think that um, Nebraska too is much of a surprise. It's going to be competitive. Don Bacon is a great incumbent and will do fine in that seat for as long as he decides to run. Um, 
main two, and then another one where you have a um, you know, main, I guess, generally, where it's been two decades now, at least, where we've had least changes between the two districts. I think with those states, everything's been just about where we thought it would be. Uh, Colorado's an interesting one. I think that you know, you've got three pretty decent Republican seats there, um, you know, three solid Democrat seats, maybe four. Uh, the real question I have there is, you know, you've got the eighth, which is competitive. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe we the commission surprised me by not having more competitive seats. But I think that one, maybe two with a third, potentially, if it degrades over time. So I think Colorado's commission did the best they could to adhere to their criteria. So as we know, maps being signed into law isn't necessarily the end of the process. Uh, you mentioned litigation. How much litigation do you expect there to be and how long do you expect it to last? Um, I expect there to be more litigation this decade than last decade which is saying a lot, <laughs> but um, I'm, Democrats are going to sue as much, if not more, than they did last decade. The difference is that we are as well. <laughs> so that's why it's a pretty easy um, easy thing for me to say there's going to be more because it's not just going to be one-sided litigation. So, I mean, there's going to be places where we you know, spend more time on defense, funding defensive um, efforts to, to try to counter what the Democrats are doing, but we're also going to go on offense. Uh, unlike the Democrats, though, we're not going to just sue because we don't like a map. What we're going to do is look for places where we think that maps have violated state law or federal law. And that's where we will be intentional about bringing lawsuits. I'm not, you know, I, I think in Ohio last decade, Democrats spent north of $13 million on one lawsuit in Ohio over the congressional map. Um, and we know that because they told the judges how much they spent. That's a lot of money for one lawsuit, especially when they had to think from day one that they were going to lose that lawsuit, given where the Supreme Court was. Um, we're not going to do stuff like that. We're going to be very targeted where we bring litigation, and it's going to be in places where we, where our lawyers and the folks that we work with see real potential legal vulnerabilities, and we're going to go after those. All right. We'll have to leave it there for now. Adam, we really appreciate you joining us, and we would love to have you back on down the road once some more maps are in place. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me. This is Down Valley Counts. Before we close the show, we've got a parting trivia shot that I'll attempt to answer on the spot. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each episode, I try to stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. So Chuck Grassley, the longtime Republican U.S. Senator from Iowa, recently announced that he will run for re-election to the Senate in 2022, when he will be 89 years young. And the question is, when was Grassley first elected? to the U.S. Senate. And your four choices are 1972, 1980, 1984, or 1986. It's time to put Kyle on the hot seat. So Kyle, when was Chuck Grassley first elected to the Senate? 1972, 1980, 1984, or 1986? I think he's running for an eighth or ninth term. <laughs> so if you're gonna make me do math here, I think it's got to be 72, right? The correct answer is actually 1980, when Grassley was elected in the Ronald Reagan presidential landslide, defeating Democratic incumbent John Culver. Grassley has since been easily reelected and begins his bid for an eighth six-year term in 2022 as a strong favorite. Grassley's career as an elected official extends much further back to 1958, when he was first elected to the Iowa House of Representatives in 1974, he was elected to the U.S. House as a rare Republican winner in the wake of Richard Nixon's resignation. So congratulations if you do 1980, and I hope you'll tune into the next episode of Down Ballot Counts for a new trivia question.
That means he was uh, sworn in uh, a month before I was born. Good times. Making me feel old, Kyle. Thank you. <laughs> that is it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020 before endorsing Joe Biden. Down ballot count. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We will talk to you soon. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel, but lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224ths of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War I. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.